Thank you for joining us for another edition of Behind the Editor's Curtain with Don Corrigan. Each edition focuses on points of interest relating to the environment and the community. And now, here's Don. Environmental Echo today is talking with Heather Navarro, who is Executive Director of the Missouri Coalition for the Environment and also just elected recently to the Board of Aldermen of the City of St. Louis. So congratulations on your election, Heather. Thank you very much, Don. Yeah. Let's talk about the Missouri Coalition for the Environment to start off. One of the things I noticed is that they are having some sessions on Clean Missouri. Can you explain what Clean Missouri is and why you're having some sessions with volunteers on this? So Clean Missouri is a ballot initiative, Um, so we're hoping to see that on the November ballot. And what that's attempting to do is essentially clean up politics in Missouri. You know, we've been waiting a long time for ethics reform at the state, and we're not seeing it. And we've also seen how unlimited campaign contributions are impacting our state and how um, gerrymandering, how we draw district lines, how that is having long-term impacts on our ability to to legislate and to make progress in the state. And so what Clean Missouri it has several, several components, one of which um, has to do with making sure that legislative records are open to the public. It would require politicians to wait two years before becoming lobbyists, so addressing that revolving door, um, and eliminate almost all lobbyist gifts. Um, so nothing more than $5 um, from lobbyists, and it would lower com- campaign contribution li- uh, limits for okay. state legislators. So, yeah, those are a few of the things that it would attempt to do. Uh, Missouri residents have passed ethics legislation before overwhelmingly, and, and then the legislatures come right back and undone them. Is there, are there any safeguards to keep the legislature from doing that again? Well, I mean, I think this would be um, a ballot initiative. So this would, if the, if the voters approve it, then it would become law. Um, and essentially what the General Assembly would have to do is, um, you know, pass a law that overturns the will of the voters, which um, which they have done in, in the past. I think this sort of thing is, um, we always saw that with uh, Proposition C, which was the renewable energy mm-hmm. standard. Um, they overturned some some pieces of that. I think this sort of um, will of the voters, I mean, those, those folks are going to be up for re-election. Right. Um, and, and I actually think there are a lot of people in Jefferson City who would like to see this sort of reform happen. And I think there are some people who are going to be grateful that, that this is happening and they don't have... Uh, they don't have to do the hard work. Um, sure. But I, I think anybody who sure. opposes that sort of will of the voters is going to have a lot to lose in the next election cycle. Yeah, there have been Republicans and Democrats who have uh, endorsed this clean Missouri. So um, I think residents need to know it's not some radical proposal. How has the environment been shortchanged because of so much money in politics? I mean, this would this would limit money in politics. We've sort of had a free-for-all, and you might say that some plutocrats who've given millions of dollars have an inordinate amount of influence on our legislature. How, how has that shortchanged the environment, do you think? Well, one of the ways we've seen it to water is in pl- play out is in water quality, and Missouri has... Um, you know, estimated over 180,000 miles of, of rivers and streams. And water is a huge part of our, our economy. Um, we're obviously dependent on it for agriculture, for drinking. Um, and so what happens with our, our water quality really impacts all of us. And that is one area where we have seen industrial ag, um, we've seen the Farm Bureau pay, play a very big role in holding our state back from being able to enforce the Clean Water Act um, as it was uh, meant to be enforced 
course back in back in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, mm-hmm. we're 30 years behind in some of the things that other states accomplished um, decades ago, and that were required under the law. Um, so that's one of the ways that we see that play out in Missouri. And Missouri Coalition for the Environment has been active in in litigation as well as through the regulatory process, trying to overcome that. But it is definitely an uphill battle. Yeah, you do see both on the state level and the national level that politicians who get a lot of money from these different interests seem to be trying to roll back a lot of the environmental um, regulations. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, so the the big federal rule that's been talked about a lot over the last few years is um, Waters of the U.S. um, rule or Clean Water Protection Act and um, the Clean Water Protection Rule. And this was attempting to to clarify what waters what water bodies are protected under the Clean Water Act, and and that's one area where we're lagging in in Missouri. Um, we have made a lot of strides, but it's still not all of our lakes, reservoirs, all miles of streams are not protected in in Missouri. And we've seen attacks on state water quality rules from the legislature the last few years. Um, everything from you know we're not going to call the waters in Missouri waters of the U.S. just blatant attempts to thwart the Clean Water Act. So those, and, and also just efforts to undermine our Department of Natural Resources, who is in charge of enforcing the Clean Water Act in Missouri. So you've been MCE director for five years, is that right? Uh, well, four and a half, uh-huh. almost five. So, so what kind of expertise from that position have you developed that you can bring to bear as an alderman now that you're an alderman for uh, St. Louis? Well, I've learned a lot about how state government works, and um, I think I've, I've also learned also where where local governments can get involved. So just in, in general, in terms of how government works or doesn't work, um, that's been very helpful. And also to see that interplay between the two, especially when it comes to natural resources, something like the Mississippi River, which is a huge asset not only to St. Louis, but to the entire region and to our state. And so um, and a lot of those issues on the river are, are federal issues, but they have direct impacts locally. Um, so being able to be more engaged and just even to understand how that works, how that plays out, what our options are, um, you know, where can the city be a good advocate mm-hmm. on some of these other issues, I think is something that um, I'll be able to bring to the Board of Aldermen. And I saw on your campaign you mentioned things like urban farming and healthy diet and local food availability. Are those um, environmental and sustainability issues? Absolutely. One of the things that we have learned at MCE over the years is if, you know, take water quality, for example, or um, soil erosion. If we want to have a big impact on how we protect those natural resources, we end up looking at agriculture uh, because that is the biggest impact in our state um, on on water quality, especially in our major our major rivers. Um, and so, once you start looking at agriculture, well, now you're looking at wow, most of what we grow is corn and soybeans. We're doing a lot of row crop farming, and and all that farming for the most part is based on incentives in the farm bill. Um, and the other people who are interested in what comes out of the farm bill, what we're growing, are people who care about what we're eating. And so, we found this intersection of environmental issues along with food access and nutrition, urban farming, you know, how do we use our vacant land in the city? All of those things kind of come together and local food systems can become a solution for all of those all of those problems. Um, transit-oriented development, you know, these are all issues that um, can be addressed by a thriving local food system. Speaking of, of, of local, the state legislature in recent years has tried to pass and has passed 
so-called preemptive legislation to prevent cities like Columbia or Kirksville or St. Louis from passing bans, for example, on, on using plastics and, and plastic bags for, for grocery stores and stuff. So uh, for a legislature that always emphasizes local control, what's your reaction to these sort of preemptive bills that they pass to try to prevent cities from doing what cities think is best for their locations? I'm kind of dumbfounded. I mean, it, it really is a contradiction um, for them to come out so strongly against local control. And, you know, the issue in Colombia was, I mean, if it wasn't um, so, so sad, it'd be comical. You know, the, the city, they came, you know, they came together as a community and said, we want to address this issue of plastic bags. And I know how they feel. I had two plastic bags and a tree in front of my house, you know, for well over a year. Um, so, I mean, I see that the, the litter um, all, all the time. So they came together as a community and said, we want to ban the use of plastic bags. Um, and, and their measure included, you know, you could purchase plastic bags um, like you can at many places, but if you, but we're not going to give out free plastic, free plastic bags. Um, and the legislature instituted its own ban on plastic bag bans. Um, and I just think, you know, in general, the General Assembly needs to be looking at the asset that thriving urban centers are to the state. You know, when our cities mm-hmm. thrive, our state thrives. And so these sorts of attempts are really just shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, we need to be attracting more college students. We need to be attracting more businesses, more young people, more entrepreneurs. And and those sorts of measures send a signal, you know, that either people aren't welcome here, businesses, you know, this is not, um, you know, this is not a progressive environment um, for people. Mm-hmm. And I guess it extends beyond environmental issues like use of plastic bags at grocery stores because you you just saw a preemption of some of the raises in the minimum wage and other areas. Where else has the legislature um, sort of infringed upon uh, local control and the rights of people in local jurisdictions to decide things for themselves? Well, yeah, the minimum wage is obviously um, a big one. Uh, the other thing that we've seen come up is oftentimes um, counties will pass an ordinance um, regarding health, and so they'll say they don't want any factory farms of a certain size in their county for health reasons, and so they will pass health ordinances to prevent certain sorts of dirty businesses like factory farms or CAFOs um, from coming into their um, their county. And the General Assembly is now working to thwart those attempts as well. And so that's been really devastating, especially after we passed Right to Farm um, a few years ago. We are seeing more big industrial ag come into our state and um, there's an effort to make agri-ready counties which essentially means these are counties where we've paved the way we've cut through any local ordinances that would try to protect human health and the environment and mm-hmm. and they're you know doing their best to, to get rid of those so that they can make way for some of these these polluters well I, I know you um, commented recently in a West End Word article about how you thought blue urban areas such as St. Louis needed to reach out to other blue urban areas such as Kansas City or Springfield or Columbia because with the political power of those population centers, uh, those population centers and the the way they feel on issues should um, have a little more clout than what happens when you have a lot of rural politicians sort of 
making law on issues that that really they're not familiar with because they don't understand what goes on in urban areas and what kinds of needs there are in urban areas. How would you reach out to them? What would you, what would you say to Springfield? What would you say to Columbia? What would you say to Kansas City? How, is, is there some kind of a blue urban coalition that needs to be formed or, or how would this work? Well, I think there are a couple of approach, approaches. And one, you know, this going back to the clean initiative, um, you know, how we draw those district lines makes a big difference. Um, and that's one of the things that has hurt urban areas because we, you know, we're really, I mean, that's how we ended up with the supermajority because of the ways the lines were drawn. And so I think, you know, pulling, pulling together some sort of coalition to make sure that this clean initiative gets passed. And then that would put an independent um, expert and demographer in charge of drawing the lines. It would no longer be a partisan effort. And so that would go a long way. So if the urban centers could come together on on making sure that that happens. I think the other thing that we can be doing is, like I mentioned before, really getting across this message that the state thrives when our cities thrive. And so it's best for the cities to make decisions about, you know, what's, how can they best attract more people to their cities? How can they best take care of the people who are there? Um, how can they best use their resources, appropriate their funds that are going to help those cities thrive? Because when those cities thrive, that means more people and more money coming into our state. And I think that, you know, that's better communication on our part. Um, and that's something that we can do. I mean, we all need each other. I mean, we also are dependent on the rural areas. We're here in St. Louis, we're downstream. And so um, if our rural neighbors are not good stewards, that impacts impacts our water quality, how much money we have to spend cleaning up the water. So, you know, we're all dependent on one another. And I don't know that that, um, that, that message gets heard over the political rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So just from talking to your constituents in this recent election, where does the environment rank among their concerns? Is it in the top five? Is it in the top 10? And and what are the issues that they're most focused on? Well, I'll just tell you, one of the biggest highlights when I was uh, canvassing, going door to door, um, I, I talked to one resident when I asked her, you know, what was the number one issue on her mind? And she told me climate change. Um, and I did. it was rare that I would hear somebody say that that was their number one issue. But I think overall the people in the 28th Ward um, are very aware of environmental issues, um, of sustainability issues. Um, you know, a lot of them are involved either through the universities um, or, you know, they've been involved in green businesses, whether that's solar, um, energy efficiency. And so they are seeing those connections and also with the local food. There are a lot of great efforts in the 28th Ward around local food, and they're seeing those connections between between poverty, health, and environmental protection. So it's um, I feel really lucky that, um, that I was able to run in the 28th Ward because I, I do think that the environment is, um, you know, at least in the top five. Or, I mean, I would say on average mm-hmm. for people. I mean, I still think public safety, um, you know, is number one. I mean, maybe the environment might even be number three. Um, air quality, especially in the summer, is, is an important issue for a lot of people, too. So, so you do represent a city ward now. Does that mean you have to be a little careful on uh, working on more regional issues, such as Coldwater Creek or the Bridgeton Landfill? Or, or is there a connection that you can make and, and talk to constituents if, if you sort of weigh in on those kinds of issues? Well, I think, you know, especially environmental issues, they don't stop 
at any municipal boundary or you know any state boundary um, and so it is all connected and I don't think I would be doing a good job of representing my constituents if I wasn't paying attention to what's happening throughout the region and how that impacts us mm-hmm. um, so I mean I definitely think there's um, a relevance a relevance there and um, you know it's not unusual for an alderman to wear a couple of hats and mm-hmm. I think in my case the the two hats that I wear, um, you know, really are mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Well, we do get all of our water in the St. Louis area from, or most of our water from the Missouri River. And, and so um, I, I think that's an example of how it's a regional issue, but it affects local areas. And, and I know that there's been some concern about leaching from the Bridgeton landfill and in, into groundwater and, and those sorts of things. What, what do you think is the solution to the uh, situation with the landfill that's on fire and, and uh, the fire is apparently creeping closer to uh, radioactive waste area. What should the St. Louis region be doing about that? Well, in the short term, we need to make sure the people around there are safe. And that is one of the things that um, Missouri Coalition for the Environment, as well as the local community group um, and others in Bridgeton have been calling for for a couple of years now. Um, You know, we know we have a very volatile site and there's a lot that we don't know about that site. And so to allow, um, you know, people to continue living there, for kids to continue going to school um, right around there, um, you know, it's really irresponsible of us, um, I believe. So I think um, you know, the community's been calling for a voluntary buyout, and I would like to see that move forward. Um, however, you know, whether that's by the state, whether that's um, by Republic Services, the EPA, we have to find a way to keep people safe while we figure out the situation, because it is a long-term situation. Um, Ideally, that waste is removed from the Missouri River floodplain. Mm-hmm. You know, right now it's a fire. Um, in a few years, it could be an earthquake. And if it's an earthquake, then the radioactive waste could be dispersed, you know, beyond, our, I mean, they're not under our control right now, but even further beyond our control, we wouldn't know where they would be. Um, it's also um, a tornado blew right over the site recently, and we know the waste aren't that far from the surface. Um, so floods um, could easily move that waste. So long term, that waste cannot stay there in the floodplain. And so we would like to, Missouri Coalition for the Environment, and I personally believe that it has to be moved in order to keep our water and our and our citizens mm-hmm. safe. And in the short term, what that means is moving it from EPA to um, an Army Corps of Engineers project. The Army Corps of Engineers have been removing radioactive waste from the St. Louis region every day for years um, from Coldwater Creek. And this is the same waste and over in the Westlake landfill. Um, and so that's what MCE has been advocating for is that um, the Army Corps of Engineers, FUSRAP is what it's called, that that program is put in charge mm-hmm. and um, that ultimately they would decide to, to move it. Mm-hmm. Are you satisfied that FUSRAP did a good job when it comes to uh, the Weldon Springs site and some of the other sites in our region? Well, Weldon Springs... Um, you know, is a, is a little bit different. Um, you know, they capped and left the waste there in that giant um, cement tomb. You know, what the long-term issues of that are, I think, um, you know, are a question mark. I don't think any community wants to know that there's a giant um, stash of radioactive waste 
in their backyard. Um, I think as far as Coldwater Creek, um, as I said, they've been trucking that waste out, and you know we're unaware of and, and putting it in a federal um, a federal storage facility that has been designed for that sort of long term storage. Um, you know, I'm I'm unaware of any issues with with moving that. I mean, I know there's obviously risks whenever you're moving radioactive waste, but it seems that that has been a very successful program so far, and we know they've been continuing to test. So as they've been moving it, they continue to test to see are there any other sites. And they have identified other places like, oh, we better go test here. And then if they find anything, then they remove that. So I think that's been a pretty efficient process. We've been happy with it, and that's what we would like to see done at Westlake. You mentioned that when you talk to constituents, one of the things that they talked about is their concern about the Paris Climate Accords and that uh, the Trump administration has been saying that they're going to remove themselves from the Paris Climate Accords and from those goals. Are you encouraged that a lot of local leaders and mayors have been sort of defying the Trump administration on this? Yes, I was very pleased to see that Mayor Krusen, um signed on right away as one of the mayors to say we're going to move forward. And I know um, when Mayor Slay was in office, I worked with his sustainability director, Catherine Warner, and I know that that was um, something at the top of her list was how can we make the city more efficient? How can we reduce our greenhouse gases in the city um, at the city level from city government? And I'm hopeful you know, that it looks like those efforts are going to be moving forward. And we are in such a unique situation here in St. Louis because we are at the confluence of the two biggest rivers um, in the country. And so that one that puts us at risk of, of flooding um, as we have more precipitation. Um, and it also means we have this great asset. We're going to have water when other parts of the country don't have water. Um, and so I think those are things that we need to really start start looking at is how do we become um, resilient and what do we do to combat climate change. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, Kansas City has been on top of this. They have an entire department um, looking at how to be resilient and how to combat climate change. And that's something that I'm hoping I can um, push for some more activity here in St. Louis. How do you respond to those that are on board with uh, the Trump administration, you know, removing itself from the Paris Accords when they say, you know, he's doing the right thing because the Accords are a job killer and it's really a, a Chinese hoax. It's been overhyped. It's not as bad as people think it is. You know, I really doubt that there's anything that I could even say to those people because if, you know, all of the climate scientists, you know, lined up are not convincing to someone, if all of the data on last year was um, the year of the most extreme weather events. So we know we've had set records for precipitation, for heat, and now for a number of extreme weather events. And the data is overwhelming. Um, so I don't know that I personally can say anything to convince those folks. But I think the moral challenge here is how can we, you know, 50 years down the road, how do we look at our grandchildren and, and tell them that we knew and we opted for short-term gain over their long-term health and, and survivability. I mean, I think that is a really tough question. I don't know how people are going to be able to look themselves in the mirror and, and know that they stopped us from moving forward, stopped us from being able to, to um, protect and, and preserve a livelihood for the next generation. You mentioned that it's a moral issue. Do you think that church leaders and religious groups have done enough or they need to get more involved into this issue of climate change and its effects on people. I noticed that there's a pretty active group that's just emerged among evangelicals, which might surprise people. Evangelicals, you know, working on addressing climate change. Do you think there is any kind of a religious awakening on this particular issue? 
I've been really encouraged by what I've seen from religious groups, and I think they have been awakened before the the general public in in some ways. I mean, we've had, you know, the Pope obviously came out with um, his encyclical uh, a couple of years ago, and like you said, the evangelical groups. um, I've worked with the Jewish Environmental Initiative here in St. Louis. Um, There are congregations that are um, organizing themselves to figure out how they can reduce their their greenhouse gases. Um, We were at the New Northside Missionary Baptist Church last fall, and, you know, they've got so solar panels on their roof. Um, so a lot of churches are really using their facilities as as models for how this can be done. And you know, I mean I think I think a lot of a lot of religious organizations are making that tie to, to being good stewards of the earth. We work with a lot of religious sisters and you know they are not only investing their time but they are investing their funds. They are also leading the divestment movement in many cases. Um, and also, we, we work with religious groups who attend share who buy stock in, in utility companies and attend shareholder meetings. So, in a lot of ways, they have really been pushing the envelope. And it would be great for us to really help spread that message because I don't know that all of those churchgoers <laughs> necessarily, um, you know, are making that that mm-hmm. connection. But the the institutions themselves have really been, I think, in a lot of ways, especially here in St. Louis, pushing so, that ball forward. So, what do you say to residents who've sort of developed a sort of moral passion for some of these issues? Do you, do you say get out and march uh, next time there's a climate change march, or do you or do you feel like those are largely symbolic kinds of actions? And in fact, there's probably more um, nuts and bolts kinds of things residents should do when it comes to the environment and sustainability. Well, I think we need all of it. Um, I think it's a, a, a spectrum, and I think you know I think the marches are good for rallying people, getting momentum. And, and sending a signal, you know, that we're going to resist, that we're not going to we're not going to put up with this, and that in turn motivates other people who might not have come out before. I mean, there are a lot of people who showed up to march, especially the, the science march. Um, I've worked with a lot of academics over the years, and a lot of them feel like you know the best way they can give is sitting in the lab. And to see them turn out and start marching, um, I, I think is a really great step. I do think at the end of the day, we've got to really be pushing the system and so that comes down to to policy and I think that's why again this clean um, ballot initiative is so important it's money and politics as long as we have all of this private corporate money filtering into our political system the, the will of the people the best interest of the people is always going to take a back seat um, and so I think getting people involved making those phone calls that that makes a difference I mean we still have the power of the ballot box um, and you know they tally up those phone calls, um, and so they you know some of that is starting to move. And we saw that um, last year there were some well there have been several efforts over the last few years regarding our our state park system, for example, and a lot of that had to do with um, with politics. But we saw people across Missouri um, showing up in Jefferson City making phone calls, and we were able to um, push back some of the worst bills um, because legislators were hearing from people. Um, so we still have that power. I still think people need to show up. Um, there was a, um, a protest at uh, the county, St. Louis County Council meeting regarding Creefcore Lake Park. And um, it was great to see all those people show up. And, you know, that we made a lot of really great legal arguments that night as well about why that an ice rink should not be put in Creefcore Lake Park. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really need there are several different level levers, and we need people pushing um, at all of those. And we need a it all needs to be a comprehensive, concerted, collective action. That was what was great about Tuesday night too, to see a bunch of different groups coming together 
um, all pushing the same button, um, which is, I think, how we're going to make the biggest change. Well, we have so many uh, empty malls in the St. Louis area. You would think mm-hmm. that that hockey complex that's planned for, you know, a floodplain area in Creep Core, you would think that they would be a little more creative and use some existing land because we do have all of these abandoned mall sites now. Right, um, but but right. but again, that that requires regional cooperation and regional thinking. Are are we getting any closer to a, a regional kind of approach to what happens in St. Louis area? Well, I, I do think the the level of conversation around a regional approach around the city and county cooperating more that level of conversation's definitely been elevated. I think you know the Better Together initiative um, is getting more people at the table and. And I think also in the city, too, we're going to be reducing the number of wards in a few years, and that is going to um, help facilitate some more holistic thinking on city issues as well. So I do think that's starting to happen. I think it should have started a long time ago, and I think St. Louis, the entire region, has been hurt by the fact that we didn't start these conversations decades ago. Um, but we are, you know, I think we are moving in the right direction. Um, we definitely have some work to do because there are um, still some municipalities that, uh, you know, don't yet see see the benefits. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we're all connected in this. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that everybody's thriving. And I think when the city of St. Louis thrives, the entire region thrives. One thing that I think people who are interested in mass transit are concerned about uh, in the city, and of course, mass transit the Metrolink, that's a way to lessen our carbon footprint. But there is some concern about gun violence in the city and some incidents that have taken place on Metrolink. Uh, What are aldermen and and the mayor doing to address that issue? Well, you know, one of the things that's going to be on the ballot, the um, Board of Aldermen, the last session, voted to put on there a um, a half-cent sales tax uh, for the city um, that would go to, to more police officers. That, not, that doesn't necessarily address the metro issue, but I think gun violence in, in the city is, is one of the top issues that we need to be addressing. Um, and so there's, there's that issue that's coming up. Um, there have been a lot of talks that I know the mayor's been involved with and by state about how we do policing on the metro. And, and again, this goes right back to our fragmentation as, as a region, the metro crisscrosses several different municipalities. Um, and so how safety and security is addressed on the, the metro is somewhat of a fragmented effort. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's part of it. Also, a lot of issues have been raised recently in terms of uh, the responsiveness to security on the metro. And I think, you know, a lot of that is being addressed now, which is really important. Um, but mass transit is critically important for a lot of reasons, not just environmentally, but um you know, just I get a lot of calls about traffic and parking and congestion, and one of the biggest solutions to that is to get more people using mass transit, whether that's the bus, the trains, um, you know, bike lanes are all pieces of that strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do need to make sure that people are safe, you know, whether it's riding their bikes or whether it's from from gun violence. And I think the issue of gun violence is, you know, it's not just it's not just the metro, but that's something as an entire city that we need to be be addressing. And there are a lot of root causes, you know, in addition to the fact that there are too many guns on the street, but also, you know, the root causes that get people into situations where they are were escalating violent situations. Yeah. You know, and now we've got all these guns available. So um, I do look forward to learning, you know, how I can get more involved in those conversations and what I can do to help move forward initiatives that are going to keep us safe and push forward mass transit. 
Well, thank you, Heather, for your time today. Environmental Echo has been talking with Heather Navarro, who's a recently elected alderman for the city of St. Louis. Congratulations on your election, Heather. And, thank uh, you again. And Heather also is well known for her work with the Missouri Coalition for the Environment. So thanks again, Heather, for your time, and we'll be talking to you down the road. Thank you so much, Don. It's been a pleasure. This is Don Corrigan for Environmental Echo. I hope you enjoyed our interview today. Have a good green day, folks.